You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. All right, we got to conduct a scientific test that is going to shape the strategic direction of the North Canton Chapel for decades. You ready? All right, here we go. Favorite sports movie? You got two choices. You got Rudy and you've got Rocky, all right? Those are your only two choices. Where are my Rudy people? Okay, where are my Rocky people? Saw Mike McClintock in the back because Notre Dame won it yesterday in a nail biter, so congratulations for new Rudy. Disney movies, so many to choose from, but let's keep this moderately, you know, present. You got Moana versus Frozen, okay? Where's my Frozen people at? Were you Frozen people? Okay, Moana. Oh my gosh, I did not expect that. Okay, I thought there'd be like three. That's all right. All right, last one. And this one probably does matter, seriously, on this one. Fantasy movies, Lord of the Rings versus Harry Potter. All right. Just saying, I'm just saying. I got, man, we got some spice happening over here. All right, Lord of the Rings people. Yes, you are correct. Harry Potter people, sinners. (laughs) Gosh. Your responses have been recorded and have been attached to your membership role here at North Canton Chapel. You will be receiving letters shortly. Now, all kidding aside, here's the thing about stories. Stories are so important, are they? Stories are so big. If you're like me, you come back to the same storyline in your life, same movies, same songs, same books, over and over again. I just like to read the same stuff. I've heard stories described as the undefended doorway of the human heart. Isn't that a great idea? The undefended doorway of the human heart. That's what stories are. Stories have the power to captivate us, transport us, calm us down, or lift us up. Now, here's the thing. I've been in ministry for like 20 years or so. I have read book after book after book about evangelism strategies. I've gone to conferences and seminars about church growth and disciple making. And I have come to believe that the church's most overlooked opportunity is actually the simplest and most powerful Knowing your faith story and having the courage to tell it. Today starts a five-week series called Restored, a character study in the life of Paul. I want to tell you where we're going in case you missed it earlier. Five weeks, just at a glance. Today, Paul as a disciple. How did this guy meet Jesus? Where does his faith story start? That's today, Paul as a disciple. Next week, Paul as a missionary. A life turned around and now spun outward. Third week, Paul as a church planter, breaking new ground for the glory of God. Week four, Paul as a pastor, nurturer, guiding, teaching Jesus' followers. Week five, Paul as a martyr, giving his life for the one who gave his life for him. Now, here's why I'm so excited about this series. I think Paul's life is just the embodiment of the idea that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. I'm not the first person to say that, but I love that idea. 
Here's the truth right out of the gate. No matter how much you regret your past, hate your present, or fear your future, there is a God who loves you too much to leave you alone in your sin. The Father sent the Son to atone for that sin and give you actual peace. He is on your side. He is chasing you, and he is relentless. Now, there's a danger to doing a series like this, though, like a character study in Paul. The message can't be, hey, just go be like Paul. Go find out what he did and then just do what he did. Paul would have hated that idea. <laughs> in fact, even when he is in the spotlight, he almost awkwardly demurs. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As if to say, yeah, you can look at me fine, but like look past me. <laughs> he doesn't hold himself up as a model. I am who I am because he is who he is. If there's any good in me, it's Christ alone. And so here's where we're going today. We're going to take a look at how Paul met Jesus. And we're going to be in three places. The book of Philippians, and then we're going to rewind to the book of Acts chapter 9, and then we're going to go back to Philippians again. As we walk through Paul's story, look at this movement, who he was before Christ, how he met Christ, and then what difference Jesus is making in his life right now. We're going to wrap up in um, spending the last 10 minutes today actually helping you maybe tell your faith story. If you've never thought about that, I want to give you some practical tools for doing that. Here's the big idea for today, though, for you note takers that like one sentence summaries of 40 minute messages. Here you go. Gospel identity is always received. It is never achieved. Gospel identity is always received. It is never achieved. Last week, we spent some time in the book of Galatians, right? Galatians is Paul's spiciest letter. <laughs> and we talked about why. False teaching led to spiritual instability in newer Christians. And in Galatians, Paul's writing like a man on fire, pushing, correcting, preaching, and pressing. Philippians, though, Philippians different. Philippians is Paul's softest, tenderest letter. In the whole letter, there's only one word of correction. It's just for two women to agree together. That's the only thing in the whole book that's like a pushing spot. If Galatians is the atomic wing sauce down at Quaker Steak, Philippians is like warm apple pie and a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Just nicer. Paul starts off the Philippians by telling, telling them how much he prays for them. He talks about the need for church unity, kind of like what we've been exploring the last month together. And then in chapter 3, Paul gets really vulnerable, which is the key to any great faith story. And incidentally, his story starts off with a warning. See if you can catch it. Here's how his story starts. Philippians 3, we're going to take a look in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. That's a strange way to start. Who's he mean? Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is a weird beginning. <laughs> for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about what now? Like, I did not come to church this morning ready to talk about that. Neither did I, but that's okay. It's in God's Word. We're going to talk about it. And plus, after everything we've been through in the last month, circumcision is kind of easy. So, like, let's just kind of get into this. <laughs> Here's why Paul starts with circumcision. Before Paul talks about who he is, he talks about who he was. Okay? Now, back in Genesis 17, you don't have to turn there. You can just follow along on the screen. As a sign of God's promise to Abraham, God says this in Genesis 17, verse 10. He says to Abraham, he says, This is my covenant, which you will keep 
between me and all of your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be with you, be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh with foreskin shall be cut off. That's a great literary device, by the way. From his people, he has broken my covenant. Little graphic, little uncomfortable. I kind of wish God chose something else, but nevertheless, it's in the Bible. So here we go. And you caught it. That's a wonderful literary device at the end, unless <clears throat> you're cut off. Quite an object lesson that you're never, ever going to forget. Now, in Old Testament times, circumcision it was first and foremost a sign of the covenant relationship between God and his people. And so when you're reading your Bible, especially the Old Testament, you need to know this. Circumcision is a religious ritual with covenantal significance. This is how you know you belong to God. You're part of his people. You are in covenantal relationship with him. Put plainly, if you want to be part of God's people, this is where your story starts. Circumcision is the visible sign of the invisible covenant. And that's the lay of the land for 1,700 plus years. You want to belong? Here's the knife. Now, this goes all the way through Abraham, Moses, and David to the time of the prophets, all the way up to the New Testament until one night in a rented room during the Passover dinner, a carpenter-turned-rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth says something unbelievable. He takes bread and he stops. And then he drops this. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Whoa, like, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. You caught this, right? This will come into focus in just a few more minutes. Just hang with me. Those aren't just nice words that we say before communion. This is Jesus looking 1,700 years in the rearview mirror and going, how do you get a covenantal relationship with God? How do you enjoy proximity to a God who wants to be personal with you? Starting tomorrow, it's my cross. My blood will stand as the Father's agreement that you belong to him. My blood will pay for your sin and bring you into covenantal relationship with God. This is what theologians call the doctrine of atonement, and it's built on three ideas. Number one, Brandon Marshall has a sin problem. Number two, my sin prevents relationship with God. Number three, who or what can fix it? And here Jesus is saying, yes, you do, and yes, it does, but God loves you so much, he sent me to fix it. This is a massive deal. In this upper room, the cross just hours away, his 12 closest friends around him, the shadow of death creeping up behind him, when that new covenant language starts falling out of his mouth, Jesus is either committing theological treason 
or he is speaking on the Father's authority. If Jesus is to be believed, and I kind of think he is, here's what he means. Belonging to the Father is not a matter of what I have done for him, but now it is a matter of what he has done for me. Gospel identity is always received. It is never achieved. How do I know I belong to him? How do I know I'm part of God's people? Only one question. Have you put your faith in Christ? That's it. This absolutely seismic shift changes everything. We're going to get back to Paul's point in just a minute, but before we do, we've got to be really, really clear on this. What atones for me? What saves me? What gets me into heaven? It's that great old gospel question that some of us were trained to ask years ago, that when you die and you stand before God and you are asked, on what basis are you here? What would you say? One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, gets it so right when he says this. If we answer in the first person, because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I did good things, because I went to church, because I gave money away, because I tried my hardest. If the first word out of my mouth is I, then we have missed the gospel. The first word needs to be in the third person, because he, Because he died, because he loved me, because he offered his life for atonement, because he gave himself. That's not just a clever answer or a cute answer or an insightful answer. Guys, that's the only answer. (laughs) Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, else I die. I bring nothing. You bring nothing. All we have is Christ, and Christ is enough. Hear me out. I know this is really strong language, but hell is full of people who thought they were doing a good job. Hell is full of people who tried their hardest. Hell is full of people who did their best. Heaven, though, is full of people who did their best, realized it wasn't enough, and traded their best for Christ's best, and said, I'm giving up, I'm just with him. So if you've ever been amazed by your own depravity or blown away by your selfishness or exhausted at how empty your life is, awesome. You are the perfect candidate to be a follower of Jesus because gospel identity is always received. It is never achieved. But just to make sure that Paul's point gets across, he elucidates a little further. He gets sarcastic and he dumps his pre-Christ spiritual resume out on the table in Philippians 3 verse 4. Here's what he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So this is Paul going, spirituality contest, you're on. And then what follows is a list of seven things. Here's what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, man, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. You want to get into a spirituality contest? I'm going to win, Paul says. I will see your good behavior and I will raise you this list. And these seven achievements that he brings out stand as evidence of his self-righteousness before Christ. Here they are, in case you didn't catch them. First, he says, circumcised on the eighth day. 
It's what God said. Way back in Genesis 17, remember? Check mark, I'm good. People of Israel, I'm not an outside convert. Like Jacob's blood flows through me. Tribe of Benjamin, hey, of the 12 tribes, Benjamin was always the most faithful. I'm good. These are my people. Hebrew of the Hebrews. As American as apple pie, baseball, and John Wayne, man. This is my country. Why did I keep the law? Man, I was a Pharisee. I was devoted my whole life to this thing. Was I intense about it? Yes, I was intense. I persecuted people who disagreed with me. Righteousness? Oh, man. My life was so perfectly manicured, nobody's got any dirt on me. <sighs> and up until this point, Paul would have said, what atones for me? Here. Here's my righteousness. Look at it. <laughs> Be amazed by it. Here's my resume. It's all there. Aren't you impressed? Here's the thing about being a Pharisee. It is exhausting to be that self-centered. Spending all your energy keeping up appearances, manicuring the front lawn of your life while you got black mold in the basement. It's exhausting to try that hard, and it's pointless to spend your time trying because it never gets you what you want. Peace. You don't get peace by trying hard. You get peace by giving up. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this little two-line rhyme that I absolutely love. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and then it gives me wings. Gospel identity is always received. It is never achieved. So put a bookmark in Philippians because Paul's story is about to take a literal tumble. Okay, we're going to come back in a bit, but what happens next changes absolutely everything. Acts chapter 9. This is the turning point where Paul meets the risen Christ. In Acts chapter 9, the gas pedal of Paul's sense of self-righteousness is absolutely floored. He goes by Saul at this point in his life, a name that literally means prayed for. Tell me that doesn't do something to your ego. <laughs> He's present at the death of a Christian martyr. He's busting into houses, dragging Christians out and hauling them out for heresy. No doubt smiling the entire way because he thinks he's doing the right thing, being loyal to the Lord. Here's where move two in his story starts. Acts chapter nine, verse one. But Saul, breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. His target are people referred to by only two descriptors, disciples of the Lord and belonging to the way. That last one is probably a reference to Jesus' exclusive claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. Damascus is this large and thriving commercial center and has a significant Jewish population probably a lot of whom had heard about this Jesus movement happening to the south. And so Paul heads to Damascus with the intention of a doctor who's going to cut out a cancer, saying, if I could stop this thing from spreading any further, maybe I can get it under control. The road from Jerusalem to Damascus is 136 miles, and because of the rough terrain, probably would have taken at least a week. And as he gets closer to the city, something happens to Paul that absolutely changes him forever. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So this is the literal turning point in Paul's story. It's worth stopping here to ask and reflect. What did Paul realize in this moment? Five things. First and foremost, he realizes that this Jesus, who he thought was dead, is actually alive and speaking to him. Like, that would have been a little freaky. <laughs> and beyond that, like, profoundly theologically jarring. Like, he's alive? How? Oh. Second thing he realizes is that all of his zeal has been pointed the wrong direction. <laughs> You've been scoring points for the other team, dude. Time to turn this around. Talk about a wake-up call. Thirdly, he realizes the close connection between Jesus and his people. I absolutely love this one. Jesus so closely identifies with the church that he tells them, it's not them you're persecuting, it's me. Makes you think about church a little bit differently, doesn't it? Fourth, he realizes that his life is not beyond the reach of grace. And here's where the light of the gospel starts to shine around the edges of the cloud. I'm not done with you, Saul. <laughs> and then fifth, he came to understand that this Jesus has a purpose for his life. I'm going to take everything you are, I'm going to turn you inside out, and I'm going to remake you into who I need you to be. So while Saul, soon to be Paul, is stumbling around in the dark on the side of a road somewhere between Jerusalem and Damascus, God's up to something up the road. Fascinating little sidebar. We can't go here today, but God's story for your life is not limited to only what you can see. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This is the only time we're going to meet him in scripture, by the way. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, different Judas, don't worry, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I love this, because this is God going like, hey, I'm up to something, and you've got a part to play in it. I know you didn't know about it until just now, but he's already got a vision with your name <laughs> attached to it, so get your shoes on. <laughs> Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, hey, uh, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority and the chief priests to bind up all who call on your name. Like, whoa, 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 time out, God. I've heard all about this guy. I'm not sure you understand what you're doing, Lord. Always a great thing to like tell God that he doesn't know what he's doing. That really works out well in scripture, but we're the same way, right? But before we chide Ananias, I think most of us would probably respond this way, right? This is like asking Al Capone to babysit your kids. Like, this is bonkers. Like, you don't want this. Funny how we limit what God can do in people. Hmm. Ananias' name, by the way, before we move on, you can't make this stuff up. Ananias' name means God is merciful. 
So God doubles down on him in verse 15. But the Lord said, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And in this remarkable show of faith, here's the man of mercy's response in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, brother Saul, what a remarkable word to start out his first conversation with this man. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. Saul can see again. And if you want to take the literary route, maybe he can see for the first time. He's strengthened. Something about a good meal, I think. And then he's welcomed into the community of people who 72 hours earlier he wanted to see dead. Now again, not the main point of this text, but a fascinating angle to think about. How differently would Paul's story have turned out if Ananias said, nah, <laughs> no can do, God. Dude's crazy. I've heard all about him. Not going. But what's the point? Meaningful mission usually involves a sense of risk. And whatever clouds of suspicion hovered over Paul just evaporate. And I think there's even another lesson in there that if Jesus is working in somebody's life, who am I to question it? Food for thought from a fairly anonymous disciple. And then it's like the light switch gets flipped on in Paul's life in verse 20. Immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. All of a sudden, Paul's life just is turned inside out. He goes, Jesus is alive. He wants his people to know him. My once wasted life is not too far gone, and I've got to make up for lost time. So part one, Paul before Jesus all of his self-righteousness. Part two, all that self-righteousness, like pfft, whatever, vaporized. Part three, take a look in Philippians chapter three again. This time in verse seven. He wants to talk about how radically Jesus changed his life. Paul now writes this. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, all of it, and I had a lot. I counted actually as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. Like I look at them like the stuff you'd clean out of your garbage disposal. That's how much they mean to me in order that I might gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him. That's all he wants. And the power of his resurrection, one for the plus column, and that I may share in his sufferings. Hmm. 
becoming like him in his death. Wow. That I might know him. That's all he wants. That's all he wants. His whole story. How can I know Christ? How can I know Christ? (laughs) Here's Paul's point. There's no such thing as a self-made Christian. Your resume may count a lot out there. doesn't matter at all in here. Gospel identity is always received. It is never achieved. Mandy and I uh, lived in Chicago for about 10 years. Mandy grew up there. And I know that I'm in trouble at home when her Chicago accent comes out. It's not a good thing. Rarely happens. We lived in Chicago for 10 years. We met in college, and then we lived there for six years after that. And what I love about the city of Chicago is it's a city full of stories, just like steeped in stories. It's got great history. It's a fun place. It's just a wonderful, wonderful place to be. One of my favorite stories happened about the turn of the century. So in the late 19th century, the problem was that the city's drinking water was flowing down the Chicago River into Lake Michigan. Problem is, is that Chicago River is dirty. There's slaughterhouses, sewage, just pumping out into the lake which became their source of drinking water. And so somebody had a great idea. Here's the picture. They said, what if we reverse the flow of the Chicago River? And somebody goes, you can't do that. That's bonkers. That's crazy. Never going to (laughs) happen. The plan was to dig a ditch wide enough and low enough where the water would actually start flowing the other direction. And so for about six or seven years, From 1892 to 1899, workers removed 42 million cubic tons of soil. That's enough to fill up the Hall of Fame Stadium 50 times. In the early morning hours of January 2nd, 1900, they blew up the last dam holding back the last bit of the river. And it's why St. Louis Cardinal fans downstream still hate Chicago Cubs fans upstream. Created a massive problem. Now, I tell that story because I think it serves as an obvious metaphor for Paul's life. But I think it serves as a metaphor for anybody who's just sick of themselves. Anybody who's going, look, I've tried everything. I'm sick of myself, and I can't take it. But here's where the metaphor breaks down. In order to actually experience change in your life, you don't need thousands of workers. You don't need seven years. You don't need to move 400 or 442 million cubic yards of dirt. You need one person. You need Christ. And that's it. Transformation without Christ, you can kind of get it. It's called behavior modification. Transformation from the outside in. That's when we start going on diets and start working out and start reading self-help books. Like, yeah, those kind of help for a little while. But transformation with Christ is called regeneration from the inside out. The gospel says that Jesus didn't die so that you could behave. He died so that you could be new. Gospel identity is always received. It's never achieved. I've come to believe that the church's most overlooked opportunity is its simplest and its most powerful, knowing your faith story and having the courage to tell it honestly. But here's what I know. Your story will not be Paul's story. It will not be your parents' story. It won't be your friend's story. It won't be a story that you've read online. It's got to be yours. It's got to be real. It's got to be truthful. And it's probably going to be a little bit scary. (laughs) And so in our last couple minutes together, we've got like four minutes before we serve communion together. I want to run through a couple of versions of faith stories. And tell me if you can't hear shades of your own in these. We go through these in our new members experience called Membership Matters. First story is the interpersonal story. 
This is the woman at the well in John chapter four. You know that one, right? This woman at the well, she's there. Jesus meets her. They have this amazing conversation and Jesus totally turns her life around. Her story sounds like this. I had blown it once too many times and everybody knew. I felt like I had a target on my back that said disgusting, failure, loser, stay away. Why do I always seem to attract the wrong people and make the wrong decisions? But Jesus, Jesus met me where I was, treated me with dignity. I was suspicious at first, but he put his finger on my pain and it hurt, but he was so still and so gentle and so kind. I'm still learning how to trust him, but every day I just get a little more hopeful. That's Jesus. Your story may be the desperate story. This is the woman in the crowd in Mark chapter nine. You remember? She's been bleeding for years. Nobody can help her and she's unclean. Nobody wants to even go near her. And she reaches out and she just grabs hold of whatever piece of Jesus she can just get a hold of. Her story sounds like this. I wonder if people ever see me, just a part of the crowd. I feel so anonymous, so faceless, so alone, so unknown, so afraid, so unseen. And some days I wonder if one day I just wasn't here. But Jesus, Jesus notices me. He sees me. He knows me. He loves me. He cares for me. And in the quiet moments when I'm away from the crowd, I feel his slow healing starting to happen. Most days are super hard, but Jesus is slowly working behind the scenes of my life. That's Jesus. Maybe your story is the wavering story. I think about Peter with this one. Just, if you grew up where I grew up, you know, in like the mid to late 90s, this is like the Ross and Rachel story. <laughs> Friends, just on again, off again. Like, where are we? Peter's like, are you with me? Where, 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 where are you? With Jesus? Without Jesus? Where are you, buddy? <laughs> we see all of Peter's insecurities, and he's on, and then he sinks beneath the waves. And then, do you know him? He's like, I've never heard of the guy before. Peter's story sounds like this. I've always struggled to prove myself. Gosh, I'm so insecure. Sometimes I can't see past my own face. Gosh, I'm so impulsive. I doubt and I waver and I wander. Sometimes I even make myself seasick. But Jesus, he never gets tired of my screw-ups. He never gets tired of my doubts, no matter how often I blow it. He welcomes my doubts, even the ones that hurt him. Jesus knows how to rebuild the places in my life that I seem to constantly destroy. That's Jesus. Fourth story, the intellectual story. This is the Ethiopian in the chariot. You remember, he happens to be reading a book. It's the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> he has no idea what this book means. And then God sends Philip, and they have this great spiritual conversation together. The intellectual story sounds like this. I have so many questions. I still kind of do. It's just who I am. I've read book after book after book after book, looking for something that I couldn't name. I'm on this constant search for meaning. I'm this restless spiritual sojourner. But Jesus, Jesus welcomes my questions because he's deeper than my doubts. He's okay when I bring him the tough questions because he doesn't get scared. It's okay if I don't have it all figured out because he just says, focus on me today. That's Jesus. Last story. Catastrophic story. Catastrophic story. This is a Philippian jailer. This is the guy who's supposed to keep watch over Paul while he's in prison. And then an earthquake comes and everything breaks loose. And he realizes he's as good as dead. 
And then he hears these guys singing hymns. <laughs> and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And Paul leads him to the Lord. Catastrophic story sounds like this. I was as good as dead. I had nowhere to go. I'd failed at my job, which means I had failed my spouse and my kids. I was a colossal public embarrassment. My life was headed over a cliff at full speed. No one could save me but Jesus. Jesus showed up right when I needed it. He showed me mercy when I didn't deserve it. He widened my gaze, giving me perspective and possibility and purpose where all I saw were problems. And I'm just so thankful to be alive, really alive. That's Jesus. Now, those are just five. And there are as many stories as there are people. <laughs> and I wonder what yours is. Every faith story has three parts to it, basically. Here's who I was before Jesus. Here's what I was counting on. Here's what I was looking to. Here's where I was finding hope. Not really finding any. <laughs> Here's how I met Jesus. Here's what he did. He probably didn't knock you to the ground in a light from heaven, although. Here's how I met him. Here's what he's doing in my life right now. So, deacons, if you guys want to come on forward, band, if you guys want to come on out, here's what I want to encourage us to do in these moments. If you're here and you know the Lord, I want to encourage you as we think about this thing that we're about to do. We're about to take bread and wine, grape juice, which you know symbolizes something way bigger than just this. This says, I belong to the Lord. I am part of his people. <laughs> this is a representation of the cross. As we're sitting here in these moments, I ask you just to sit and reflect on your own faith story. And maybe you're still stuck over here. You're still counting on something. You haven't had this yet. If that's you, just let this pass you by. Maybe you're here, but you don't have this part yet. We're like, what difference is Jesus making in my life? Use this time to sit and reflect and hear from the Lord. God is writing your faith story. You're not the hero. You don't have to have it all figured out. He's the hero. <laughs> and so as our deacons pass, I want you to hold the cups in your hands and Spend a few moments in prayer, and then I'll come back up and we'll take the elements together. Deacons, if you'd pass. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.